Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. During the course of the Bad Roman Project and talking with people like Keith Giles, Jason Porterfield, and Brexit Cavey, I have noticed a striking resemblance between the early church and the Anabaptists, especially in regards to their attitudes towards the state and violence. While studying the early church and learning more about how they reacted to the state, I've also learned about the nonviolent side of it as well, and I asked Bruxy to come back on the show to give us a lesson about the Anabaptists. Would you rather serve God than serve Caesar, you feel me? I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live what he said. I ain't scared. I will take one to the head. Go ahead. So it's safe to say that I'm mad. Bruxy, how are you doing today? Hey, very good, Craig. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you that you uh, accepted the invite. We had we got a, a great response the last time you were on the show. And it actually, I don't know, we had a lot more Canadian listeners show up after you, we published your episode. So that was pretty cool to, cool to see. <laughs> I'm bringing the Northern power with me. <laughs> but before we get started, I, I want to start with your book and then I'll kind of work into the Anabaptist. But um I have an apology. So last time you were on the show, I kept calling you Bruxy Cavi, and <laughs> you never corrected me. And I and I kept doing it even when I would talk about our discussion to other folks on our, on our podcast. And Patrick Carroll, I believe it was Patrick Carroll, I had him on to talk, and he's Canadian. I, I talked to him about an article that he wrote. He's very familiar with you, and he messaged me. He goes, he goes, I think he he pronounces it with a long A because I kept saying Cavi. Yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, I, I'm just happy you got it close enough. That's great. Everybody knew enough about you to know that who I was talking about, even no matter how I was saying your last name. But like I was telling you before we started recording, you got me back at the end of the show because you called me Hank because we were talking about an article you wrote for your blog. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about yeah. a guy named Hank. Yeah, we're even now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got some stuff pulled up. Um, your book, what have you been up to since last time you were on the show? I know you're pretty busy, like in, in emailing with your assistant to try to set this up. It seems like you've got a lot going on. Hey, yeah, you know, like a lot of people trying to navigate uh, what it means to build authentic community, but to do a majority of it online and, you know, through Zoom and telephone and different technologies, and then also trying to find the right and appropriate ways to get in person with people um, and to know when to when to follow a particular pattern and when to deviate from that pattern for pastoral reasons and what there's all kinds of interesting um questions about love and the love ethic and what love should look like that many of us are needing to ask ourselves these days that um, I think it's a great it's a great project for the church to always ask the question what should love look like what shape should love take given the context that I'm in right now that's the New Testament ethic of Jesus so I'm, I'm doing a lot of that as a lot of pastors and a lot of people are um, these days and and it's a you know being a pastor man it's a pretty wild job Craig because I'll I'll be celebrating uh, someone's birth one day, and then just last night was on the phone for a half hour with a guy who's been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. He's got a few months to live. He's a young guy, and he just has come to accept his own mortality, and now we're talking about how we're going to help him die well over the next few months. And then, then I'll be in Bible study and having a theological debate, and then I'll be on a podcast with an old friend. So uh, we've got it, – it's a it's a really interesting um, – 
way to be in this world to be a pastor. And certainly this last year, it's been doubly interesting. Well, especially with everything that's been going on, I can imagine trying to mm-hmm. set every, set stuff up. Um, are you guys still holding church services? Or are you? We're not. We're locked down right now. As we're recording this, our our region has gone back into lockdown because of a strong third wave with you know the new deviant variant, whatever it is, and um, and so we're online. You know the the positive side of that is us pushing everything online for our church has helped us connect with a bunch of people we wouldn't have connected with before. So now we do have people tracking with us from multiple countries around the world who are letting us know that they're listening, who we just wouldn't have connected with otherwise. So we're we're looking at the positive and saying that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to navigate with everything going on. It's it's not as I guess not as bad here. I, I actually I recently moved to a different county in Tennessee and it's it's not as locked down so we're you can kind of move around more freely. So let's start with your book. It's called The End of Religion. All right. So I've got some stuff that I've pulled up off your Facebook page. And just like I said, I hadn't had a chance to read it yet. But a lot of what you, you were sharing on your, your page really resonates with with us at the Bad Roman. And uh, the first one you, you said, what I want to do is kind of read this stuff off and let you kind of go more into it, if you don't mind. If, if you All right. So the first one is... Uh, Christians can be the worst for inviting Jesus to bless their conservative, liberal, religious, and political agendas rather than submitting everything they are, everything they have, everything they stand for to his radical, altered cultural way of living. Well, um, yeah, thanks for raising that, Craig. So Jesus had a name for his message. He called it the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, or the good news of the nation, or the good news of the the people group. I mean, these are all threatening terms to any political agenda, anyone who finds their primary identity and their nationality or their race or their political loyalties. It's threatening. They are, it's a threatening concept to say Jesus is inviting us into a whole new way of finding our ethnic and national and political identities in this world. The good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. That means we've got a king, that's Jesus. And it also means that we are we're citizens of a different way of being in this world. And that changes everything for us. At least it should. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are uh, invite Jesus to bless their American agenda or their Canadian agenda as though God's job is to be our life coach or our mascot or our guru or our genie in the bottle who blesses what we want to do on this planet and blesses our nation when actually we're supposed to see ourselves primarily as citizens of the Jesus nation. That's our primary identity. And that changes our relationship with our own countries where we find ourselves. So so you, Craig, are less of an American citizen and more of a citizen of the Jesus nation. And that means you are called to be an ambassador to America. You're like a foreign ambassador who's now living in America. And your job is to represent the policies of your nation, which is the Jesus nation. And you're, you represent them to this foreign land where you called to, you're called to be an ambassador called America. And, and so that changes things. You know, ambassadors in a foreign country, they they um, they don't just try and, and adopt the views of that country. They're actually representing the views. The whole reason they're there is because they're representing the views of another country. And so, um, you know, as a Canadian, Jesus is not here to help me be a really good and decent citizen of Canada. Boring and bland. <laughs> I'm not here to be a good and decent Canadian. My goodness. I'm here to be an ambassador to Canada about a completely alternative kingdom, a whole new way of living. And that to me is very exciting. And that's that's what Jesus calls us to. 
Well, I like that how you use the term. It's a, it should be it's a threat, or that type of language is a threat to anything that, mm. especially like on the right or left agenda stuff. Because a, a friend of mine, he's helped with the project some, and he he made a comment on one of our shows, and he said if we're if, if Christians aren't a threat to the state, mm. then we're probably not living like we're supposed to be. Yeah, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it, it if you get the gist of what I'm saying, it, yeah, and so you can see that part of the crucifixion of Jesus was not only you have the double threat of the religious establishment, the power brokers of religion saying, this guy's got to die. He's threatening our job security by offering people God's grace and forgiveness and love and acceptance apart from the religious system. He's 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 not he's going to be the last sacrifice. He's going to what? Just offer forgiveness to people without telling them they've got to kill a goat or a dove. That's going to put religion out of a business. So you've got the power brokers of religion calling for his death. But then you've got the power brokers of politics who then will carry it out and they will carry it out in such a way as to make a statement. We're in charge here. Don't mess with Rome. And so the crucifixion is designed to, to send a message. And on top of that, a pilot has the, his Roman guards um, or they initiate it on, on their own. Either way, they decide to go one better and make a mockery of the fact that Jesus claimed to be a king of an alternative kingdom. And so it's, uh, it's done with complete mockery and complete irony that they make him wear a, a purple robe, you know, the color of royalty, hold a mock scepter as a king. And then eventually they crown him with a crown of suffering. You know, it's this upside down mockery crown. But as the gospel writers record all this, they're pointing out that what the Romans are doing as insult, what the Romans are doing ironically, Jesus is receiving as actual truth. He is being crowned king of the alternative kingdom that doesn't overcome the world through might and power. It overcomes the world through suffering love that says, you know, no matter what you do to me, I'm ready to forgive you. I'm not going to fight your fire with fire. I'm going to fight uh, with, um, I'm going to fight against the, you know, the dark forces that are propelling you to do this, but I don't see you as the enemy. I see you as victims of the enemy. I'm going to die forgiving you, even as you're murdering me. And this is the king. This is the coronation of our king. He's ascended to his throne on the cross. And then just in case people are not catching the irony of the of the robe and the scepter and the crown of thorns, then Pilate has them put a sign above his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, all to be a form of mockery and belittling, but it's all true. It reveals truth, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so this is this is the king of our kingdom. And then we enter into that beautiful world of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation, not not the crazy nationalism that we can get so easily sucked into. Right. That's good stuff. I don't know if you're familiar if you heard recently, which came out the other day, and I can't remember the guy's name. He's president something, but it was the uh Church of Latter-day Saints, he come out and he had this big, long speech. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he yeah. he, he was calling the United States Constitution divinely inspired. Mm. And, and stuff like that really just grinds my gears when yeah. I hear people talk like that. Because you hear that type of rhetoric with uh, with Christians, especially in the United States, quite a bit. And it's that type of stuff is just so, it's such a dangerous, it's dangerous language because you're leading, to me, you're leading folks away from Oh yeah, the true king. When you're saying because from what I could tell, just from the early church, this is what I want to get on about the Anabaptists. But they they had no interest in that stuff. It just and you told me something the last time you were on. It's always been stuck in the back of my brain too. I use it all the time. Hmm. It's a thing, but it's not my thing. <laughs> and I love using that. Hmm. Yeah, you know it's true. The you, the early church didn't say our agenda is to help Rome become a more Christian society. It just wasn't. 
It's not what they talked about. It's not what they wrote about. Uh, they wanted God's people to follow Jesus, and they wanted more people to follow Jesus and become part of that. But reforming Rome was not their political agenda, and um, it just wasn't a focus of the teaching of Jesus or the early church. And so it's, it's one of the natures of reality is that often a people's weakness is their strength gone wrong. And we could say a strength of America is that it has um, a lot of Christian teaching and Bible teaching and heritage kind of woven into its culture. You could call that a strength, but its weakness is that this strength has become so tempting and enticing. People have started to think of America as somehow a Christian nation when the whole idea is oxymoronic. I mean, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. The people are Christians or not Christians, but nations are not Christians unless it's the Jesus nation, the alternative kingdom. And so um, so the strength of America, some of the God and apple pie and mom and Bible and church, et cetera, some of those things which you could consider strengths are just really they become the weaknesses that sucker people away from the kingdom of Christ. I was raised that way. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're telling me stuff I already knew. But yeah. Here's the next one I wanted to read for uh, an excerpt out of your book. It says, here's the problem with Christians having power. And you kind of alluded to it just now, but it says, Jesus doesn't teach his followers how to use their power to govern well. He teaches them how to lay down their power to serve well. Mm, yeah. And that's so powerful. It's such a powerful statement because it, it really goes against everything that we're taught growing up as as being a, a like a Christian, being part of a Christian nation. Yes, because if you're part of a Christian nation, then the, your number one goal every election year is to get the most Christian, professing Christian leader elected, because um, that Christian leader is going to help the country become live up to its full Christian potential in a way that the non-Christian leader is not. And it, it really is this weird, twisted fusion of church and state, of religion and politics. And remember, it was the fusion of religion and politics that murdered Jesus. When religion and politics get in bed together, usually violence is their love child. So it's it's not an admirable or worthy goal for people to say, we've got to make sure we get a Christian politics. We have no empirical data throughout the centuries that someone who professes Christianity is in and of themselves a better politician anyway. Uh, that doesn't necessarily make them a better leader. And the reason being is that Jesus doesn't give us a course on how to be a good politician. There's nothing in the teaching of Jesus that teaches people how to steward that kind of coercive power, because that's what politics can be. You you can steward the you steward the laws of the land, and laws are enforced. That's coercive power. That's this is how you have to live, or else. And there has to be an or else. Um, we understand that. <clears throat> Earthly nations, they don't lead by changed hearts of people saying, how can I just love better? Um, we hope that people will be that way in any nation, but the nation itself has to lead by law, law and order, law and order. And so uh, that's coercive power. And it may have its place in a secular state, but it's not the kingdom of Christ. So Jesus doesn't waste his time teaching. Here's how you steward power. Here's how you en enact law and order. So when a Christian president, prime minister, leader gets in power, they can't really turn to the teaching of Jesus to help them do it well, because he just doesn't address that. He says instead, my followers need to lay down their power, be willing to die, be willing to give it all up for someone else. And that doesn't make for good politics. So a Christian leader is not actually turning to Christ 
to help him lead, especially in politics, a Christian political leader. They have to turn to other parts of the Bible. They have to go back in the Old Testament. How did King David lead? How did Joshua lead Israel into battle? How did Moses lead with the law, law and order? And, and so they end up not following Jesus so much. Jesus has diminished to just being another Bible character. He's one of many Bible characters, and you can turn to Jesus and learn some lessons and teach your kids some Bible stories and about him you know, feeding 5,000 with uh, some loaves and fishes and some other lovely things about Jesus, but he's just one of the Bible characters. Otherwise, you have to turn to Old Testament paradigms to inform your politics, and that's not the way of Jesus. And so Jesus says, no, just lay it all down, brother, lay it all down. That's uh, that's one thing that it, it took me a long time to come to grips with because you hear the stuff like you hear it about well people the folks will bring up stuff in the in the Old Testament and it kind of sounds like it's contradicting to what when Jesus says when you've seen me you've seen the Father yeah okay so when you see these things that are being talked about in the Old Testament but when you've seen Jesus there's nothing about Jesus that suggests that and he says when you've seen me you've seen the Father so what's going on here, you know, and, and, and I get so many, and not, I don't get into these debates with people because it goes above my head a lot of the times, but it's hard for me to come back with, well, I know it says that in the Old Testament, but I know what Jesus said. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Just before Jesus died, he turned to his disciples at the last supper and he, he held the cup of the last supper out and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was promising that through his death, he was going to cut a new covenant. That was the Hebrew phrase, to cut a covenant, because it meant that usually an animal is going to get cut. There's going to be blood. Instead of signing with ink, you signed with blood in those days to make a contract. And so Jesus is cutting a new covenant. And a new covenant is actually new. It's a new way of doing things. That's why it's a bit of a misuse of the Bible to say, well, I found this in the Bible, so it must be from God. I uh, Well, it's in the Bible, so I guess it's for today. No, actually, the Bible tells the story of the old covenant being then replaced by the new covenant. And the new covenant does change things. That's not being unbiblical. That's actually what the Bible tells us. And Jesus tells us he came to bring the new covenant. And the new covenant is not just bolted on to the old covenant. It's not like, well, we got the old covenant with Moses. Now we get to season it with a bit of Jesus. Now we get to bolt on this new covenant. So you have the two together and it's a fully orbed biblical worldview. You say, no, no, the new covenant is supposed to replace the old. The old is, it's not old as in aged, like, um, hey, that's my old grandpa, but it's old as in former, as in that's my old boss. You know, my old boss is the boss I used to work for, but no more. And so the old covenant is not just older because it's aged. It's like it's actually the former covenant. And of course, if we're not Jewish, it never was our covenant in the first place. We enter the whole story of God's people through Jesus. I love that. That's That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> All right. One last thing out of your book. And you, you kind of touched on the, the coercive side of uh, mm. man's law, but it says the unholy alliance of religion and politics always wreaks havoc by building a society on the myth of all myths, that this universe is run by coercive power rather than humble love. Mm, yeah. Craig, uh, the, I think the three most beautiful words that have ever been translated into English are these three words. The three beautiful words are God is love. That just... I think that hits my heart in a beautiful way and it sits with me and it opens up my heart to all kinds of possibilities. God is love. The Apostle John wrote those three beautiful words um, in his epistle, 1 John uh, chapter 3. 
and he talks all, he talks about it quite a bit in chapter oh sorry chapter four but in chapter three he talks about this and then on into chapter four and and it's it's based on John wrote this after spending a few years with Jesus and believing like what John writes in his gospel uh, where he says in John twelve forty five he records Jesus saying anyone who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Those, that's a great line. That's John 12, 45. Anyone who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Jesus is like one-stop shopping. If you want to get to know what God is like, just stare at Jesus and you get to know. And so John believed this and he spent years with Jesus and he came to the conclusion after spending this time with Jesus, now I can say it. I can say the thing that no other religious text had recorded up until this point. The three beautiful words, God is love. And then if that's the case, if that's who God is, then it means that this universe was birthed into existence because of love. Um, this universe is sustained every day because of love. And in everything gone, even in the things gone wrong, God's going to be there working to bring about the most loving option. God doesn't necessarily cause all the things gone wrong. He's created free will beings like ourselves and partners with us to help the future unfold. But whether or not God causes any particular moment of suffering, we do know that God is going to be in that moment of suffering, helping bring about the most loving possibility. And we can either partner with that force or work against that force. But this way of love is actually, it's what runs the universe, it's what birthed the universe. And when we are in sync with love, we're in sync with everything that matters. Right. And why do you think that it's so difficult for some folks to kind of grasp that? Because to me, and I, and I say this all the time, and like I told you a while ago, I don't get into all these theological debates and stuff because it goes way over my head. But to me, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. If it's not something that Jesus was doing or how Jesus was behaving, then it's not for me. I mean, if we're if we're following Christ as Christians, then but why is it so difficult? Do you think? Cause, and I think this might lead into what I want to talk to you about the Anabaptists because they always had it, from what I can tell, have like a Jesus centric type. You got it attitude. And so, but what do you, what do you think it is that's so difficult for folks to grasp onto with it? Because to me, like, and I say it all the time, I said, it's, Jesus made it very simple for us. We just seem to make it very difficult. And I think when we're making it difficult, we're making it difficult for other people that want to get to know Jesus or may, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like having, have an opportunity to get to know him later on, but I don't know. It's, it's weird to me because it's, it's so easy. I, I'm more of a black and white type person. I don't see a lot of gray. So it is what it is to me. If Jesus isn't doing it, then I don't need to be doing it either. <laughs> Craig, I love that. You are modeling the beauty and the simplicity of what following Jesus should look like. And then you can have the person who loves the theological debates and the person who avoids them both on the same page and say, well, at the end of the day, what we have in common is we need to just follow Jesus in the simplicity of his message. And and if that's true, then the highly educated and the uneducated, the person whose brain loves a good debate and the person who prefers to keep it simple. In the end of the day, they're all kind of on the same playing field together because because uh, it, it's not about figuring out something that's complicated. It's actually about following something that's very simple. And um, and so that's that's where um, I, th- I think your podcast and what you're doing is a beautiful model of that. And and you're, and I think that the we're distracted by the way of power because I'm not sure what can what tempts people more than power. Um, I know there, there's sex, there's money, there's power, but in some sense, all of those sex can become a power manipulative experience. And money, why do we want money? So we can have the power to acquire things. Power is something that 
Well, I mean, that's what Satan wanted. That's what tempts Adam and Eve to kind of have the power to solve their own problems and to, I mean, that that becomes the way of religion. Religion is kind of taking everything into our our court and saying, we're going to build the stairway to heaven. We're going to um, create the system that, that solves the problem instead of just being humbled and receiving God's grace as a free gift. So I think power is just always tempting. And to the person who says, I don't believe in God, well, the devil says, great, I won. To the person who says, I do believe in God and I really care, the devil doesn't give up on them and say, oh, well, then I'll just, I've lost another one. The devil says, okay, great. I love that you believe in God and I've got something for you. It's called religion and it'll help you use your power to kind of coerce other people to, and the devil doesn't, you know, he's right there tempting all the time. Um, and so uh, power is very tempting, but uh, Jesus I mean, that's why we've got to, every generation, like the Anabaptists did, return to the simplicity, like you're doing through this podcast, return to the simplicity of Jesus and invite one another to check our power at the door. And the only power that matters now is the power of love. Thank you for your kind words about the project, by the way. That means a lot. I mean, I never know what, what I'm going to get from people. We get a little pushback, but not. it's been pretty cool to watch. We're not getting a ton of pushback yet. So All right. maybe if we get a little bit bigger, we'll start getting a little more pushback. And, hmm. If I do, I'll just invite them on the show and have them talk to Bruxy KV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go, man. You All right, cool, cool, man. Word. Hey, folks. Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. So the last time I had you on the show, let's get into the Anabaptist a little bit. But um, yeah. you told me, if I remember correctly, you had you you have a, a Pentecostal background, or you started out as a Pentecostal, I guess, and then you kind of worked your way through some other stuff to get to the Anabaptist side. So what what was it about the Anabaptist that drew you? I mean, was it like a long process? Because I'm still learning more. I, I know there's a place about 30 minutes away from where I live now. It's a Mennonite uh, Amish community. And they got a church, and I are they, is it the same thing? Is it the Anabaptists and the Amish? Is that the same thing, or yeah, it comes from the same root system for sure. And then we've gone our separate ways in different ways, but comes from the same roots. And that is, well, if you look through church history, every few generations there's a kind of return to simplicity movement. I mean, back in the Catholic Church, you had Saint Francis of Assisi, who was like. It's not about the opulence and the riches of the Catholic Church. I want to renounce all of that, and I want to live simply as a monk and just hang out with the with with nature and the woodland creatures and learn from what God is teaching me through nature. And it was like a simplicity movement. And you have you have these kind of returning to the simplicity of Jesus movements within the Christian faith every few generations. It's a beautiful thing in that the Christian faith at its best is a, a renewal movement that keeps renewing. And, and, it, and it gets off track, as every movement does, and, but then it's built right into its DNA, this idea of repentance, which is to rethink. That's just what the word means, is to rethink. Um, is that It's a repentance movement. It's not a thing you do once, say, I'm sorry for my sins, now I go to heaven when I die. Repentance is a mindset. It's that I always want to be willing to rethink and to renew 
um, if I notice something's gone off track. And that's embedded right into like the call of Jesus. When he would preach this kingdom, this alternative kingdom, he would attach these two words to it, repent and believe. You know, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So it's rethink everything. You got to be willing to rethink some of the stuff you've assumed is Christian. And and then put your your trust in me, which is what believe means. So repent and believe because the kingdom is here. And and so the Anabaptists were one of the more significant renewal movements in the history of the church. And they happened right on the heels of the Protestant Reformation. So most people have heard of Protestants and the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. When you just have the Catholics, you also have the Orthodox Church, uh, but primarily in the West, you have the Catholic Church. And and the Catholics got off the rails. So they were doing some stuff that wasn't good. And most Catholics would admit we were not a healthy version of ourselves at that time. So we're not we're not speaking mean about our Catholic friends. Uh, they would say the same thing. At the time, the Catholic Church was not healthy, had some pretty wild beliefs. And so the Protestants were just, they were just Catholics because there were no other options at the time, who protested their own church. So you have the Protestants protesting. That's why they're the Protestants. And then... The Catholic Church, rather than reform the Catholic Church, the Catholics just kick them out. So they go start their own church, the Protestant Church. Well, the Protestants push back against the Catholics by saying, listen, Catholics, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff and teaching a bunch of stuff that's just not in the Bible. So you have the Bible, but you also have this other source of authority. We could call it church tradition uh, or, or the, the pronouncements of the Pope. And so you can turn to the Bible to find something, but you also can turn to whatever the Pope says to find something, and you're making a bunch of stuff up. The church, that's why the church isn't healthy. So the Protestants say, we've got the solution. Christians just need to, to turn to the Bible and the Bible only and follow the Bible. Just follow the Bible. That's the best way forward. Well, it was a step in the right direction. But then the Protestants themselves started to get off the rails. Like really quickly, the very first generation of Protestants said, you know, we're, we're going to correct the theology of the Catholics. But, but then they started turning to the Bible. And you know what? If you just say, I follow the Bible, you can justify almost anything by turning to the page you want to in the Bible. You want to justify warfare, you have the wars of Joshua. You want to, you want to justify the way of law and order, you turn to Moses. You want to, you want to justify um, you know, more war and multiple wives, you can turn to King David and Solomon. And, and then Jesus, like I said before, is just one character in the Bible. Good for Jesus. We pat him on the head. But we kind of we, we kind of neuter Jesus, you know, we take away some of his potency because he's just, you know, watered down with all the other Bible characters. And the Anabaptists were the, the very next generation of the Protestant reformers who said, wait a second, you've told us that we should start reading the Bible, not just listen to what the Pope says. Well, when we read the Bible, we realize that it's pointing to Jesus and we're supposed to follow Jesus. And when we do that, that changes everything because the Protestants were just as violent as the Catholics. They burned witches just like the Catholics. They tortured heretics or people they called heretics just like the Catholics. And they went to war, whether it's against Muslims, persecuting Jews, or fighting against fellow Christians, just like the Catholics did. The Catholics killed the Protestants because the Pope said to, and the Protestants killed the Catholics because they thought the Bible says to. And the Anabaptists are the ones who say, wait a minute. Can somebody just listen to Jesus in the middle of all of this? <laughs> How about that? How about that idea? And and it was like this beautiful renewal movement that captured something at the time. Now, of course, the Anabaptists were persecuted for it by people who claimed to be Christians. 
They were killed by Catholics if they ran to a Catholic country. They were killed by Protestants if they ran to a Protestant country. Um, and so eventually they they found out they could come over to the Americas and set up some colonies here and not get persecuted. And so they came over to uh, say to America and they they said after generations of being slaughtered for their faith because they just wanted to follow Jesus peacefully. They said, listen, let's just keep our head down and hope nobody notices us. <laughs> let's just farm the land and not get involved with the society around us. And so that's where you get this insular movement that was very radical. You know, they were they they were calling Christians to repent, rethink, and follow Jesus. It was very radical to begin with. And that's where over time it starts to become insular and quiet and very traditional. And that's when you get the Amish and the Mennonites, the old order Mennonites. And they're almost like freeze dried in time. You know, they're, they're like, they just stopped engaging with the world around them because, uh, you know, the, the persecution will do that to a movement. So we're, I'm part of a renewal movement about that renewal movement to say, okay, now it's time for us to poke our head out of the sand and say, what's happening in the world? And how can we get the church back on track with this message of Jesus again? Well, see, that's interesting you said that because I was going to ask you about like the persecution side of it because I've heard about that. But I was talking to his name's Caleb Kesterson. He wrote. Are you familiar with the, the books, The Lord of the or not? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's Lord of the Rings, and the and the, the movies. Well, yes, yeah, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Okay, I've never seen them. So, but this guy he wrote a couple. Well, all right. Yes, and I always get that tilted head look when I tell people I've never seen them. <laughs> but he wrote a couple articles for our blog. You know, kind of comparing the movies to uh, like anarchism and voluntary societies. And uh, he was taught, he's an Anabaptist. He said one thing about the Amish and the Mennonites. He said, they're so outside of society that they're not working with the society. He's got a home church and he's trying to do something different that way. He's got maybe a dozen people, but they're trying to work within society, maybe the fringes of society, but not, you know what I mean? Like not just secluding themselves to their own society. Now, the lady I talked to on the phone about maybe visiting their church, the one I was talking about 30 minutes away, she goes, we welcome everybody. It, well, it's a beautiful thing. The Anabaptists um, are, and let's Mennonites, Amish, and, and people like ourselves, we, um, I, and, I, and I'm new, relatively speaking, I wasn't raised Anabaptist, so I can brag on them a bit because I feel like I, I'm just discovering them more and more, you know, just like you are. And, and the Anabaptists, they have a real sweetness and a gentleness to them. I mean, and that... That happens when you have an entire movement that here's just one teaching of Jesus, but it can make a difference. They swore off of all violence. And they said that the way of violence is not in keeping with the way of Jesus. And so it's okay to die for a cause. It's not okay to kill for a cause. So if someone says, well, you know what happens? Somebody breaks into your house and he kills you. And they just say, yeah, well, that's okay. Because whoever said it was bad to die, <laughs> it's okay to die for a cause. Well, you know, what happens if Hitler's taking over the world? Well, okay, then, you know, we'll die protesting, but we won't we won't kill protesting. So they once you get to that point, whether you agree or you disagree with that one teaching of Jesus, once you radically apply that, it changes your heart. It changes your disposition towards your enemies. It softens you. It makes you more open to this thing called the fruit of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That These things that the spirit wants to do in us, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. 
it makes you more open to that rather than the way of power and coercion and fighting for your rights and making sure that you bring righteousness about by getting the right laws passed. That kind of softens as you're more open to what the Spirit's doing. So you will find that Anabaptist groups often have just kind of a a Jesus-y sweetness to them, which is really beautiful. It's just many of them need encouragement now to start reaching out and helping the rest of the church get to know them better and the rest of the world to get to know Jesus better. Yeah, you want to you want to get some pushback from from some folks. Tell them you won't kill somebody in self defense. So pacifism is something that I've I've learned along the way with this project as well. With talking to folks like you and you know you know Keith Giles and uh, uh, my friend Abby who writes for our blog. She she helps uh, co-host the show sometimes, and she's a pacifist. And there's another guy, Jason. He's a pacifist. He and they've helped me understand it when they told me that you're actively working towards peace. Yes. A light bulb went off in my head. And I said, okay, now it makes sense. And the way, you know, like you're talking, there's a sweetness about them, but people tend to think that we're just a bunch of hippies out there running around with, <laughs> yeah. with our flags and stuff. They just promoting love. We are, I guess, to a sense, but I don't know if I can be called a hippie since I shaved my head. I don't know how all that works either. You, you know what? Jesus never encouraged his followers to be passive. He encouraged them to be peacemakers. That's where we get the word pacifism. Pacifism doesn't mean to be passive. It means to actively work for peace. But in actively working for peace, one of the things Jesus taught his followers is that peace should not just be the goal that you're trying to achieve by any means necessary. That's more of the way of um, Malcolm X, by any means necessary. But the way of, say, Martin Luther King, which makes a real historical contrast at a certain time in history is to say peace is not just the goal that we're going to work for by any means necessary. Peace is the means. Peace is the way to achieve the goal. So the means and the goal align. So if you don't work for peace through violence, you don't work through love for love through hate, you don't work through for simplicity through riches, the, the means and the goal align. So you're practicing for the goal while you're working for it. And so Jesus, he never taught passivity, but he did teach a peaceful response to violence. So he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, he didn't say, forget about it. Mind your own business and walk away. Jesus says, if someone slaps you, turn to them the other cheek. Now you're daring them, proceed with your violence. But when you turn the other cheek, you're now forcing them to respect you, to see you as a human being, even if they're going to continue their violence. You won't fight back with violence. But you are also just not doing nothing. He says if someone forces you to go one mile, which would be a Roman soldier forcing you to carry his gear, he says go with, he doesn't say, ah, forget about it. Go ahead, do the mile and then go home. He says when someone forces you to go one mile, at the end of that mile, you say, you know what? I'm going to carry your gear a second mile. That first mile was slavery. The second mile is freedom. And it's an active engagement of love for a person who society says is your enemy, who that person thinks is your enemy. They're your oppressor, but you're giving them a chance to have a wake-up call, to see you as a human being, and maybe to see themselves as the oppressor that they are. These are these are creative, engaging ways of giving people, um, I would call it ethical shock treatment, you know, to go, whoa, what are you doing, man? That's not what I expected you to do. You're supposed to spit my face and hate me because I'm beating you. But instead, you're forgiving me. You're loving me just like Jesus does from the cross. This ethical shock treatment gives people a chance to change. It might not always work. You might just die, but that's okay. It's always okay to die for Jesus. It's just not okay to kill for Jesus. Right. That I was fixing to say that because, and you just nailed it right there, because I think what we tend to forget that 
the effect you can have on a person's life by not killing them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, just think of it. Even, even if, 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 even if you die in the, in, in the, in the process, some point down their life, they're going to remember that. I heard a story about a guy in prison that he, he murdered uh, some folks and the family of the people he murdered, he, they refused to have him to push for the, his, his execution mm. and it changed his life. Like he found Jesus, you know, and it's just stuff like that. I think we, we need to keep in mind when, when we're actively seeking peace, you know, you're not, you can change somebody's mind, maybe not that day, but you've planted a seed maybe a year later, you know, you just, you just never know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's so strange that a movement following the guy who changed the world by dying for love that, you know, who didn't fight back, but actually changed people's hearts. I mean, even a Roman soldier who was part of the crucifixion squad, who is there in charge of Jesus's death, he's supervising his death. He watches how Jesus, how Jesus dies. And he says, surely this man was the son of God that it changes him on the spot. And, and, you know, Jesus just fighting back like any other rebel they were crucifying would not have changed his heart, even if Jesus had won the battle. When you force people to convert, it's not real conversion. The only way we can change hearts is through love, not through not through the love of power, right? But through the love of people. All right. One last thing before I let you go, and then yeah. I'll let you plug, you know, where we can find your book and anything else you want to. But um, so have the Anabaptists, have they all, I know they're Jesus centric, but have they always been like an, like, I don't know if, if anti-state is the, is the word, but they just, it wasn't their thing. You know, like we were talking about earlier, is, have they always been that way or is it something they kind of grew into? No, right from the beginning, because back then at the time of the Protestant Reformation, you know, church and state were fused together. Um, so if the church decided that there was an enemy, the state rallied the soldiers to go to war against them, right? So they worked together. So Protestant nations went to war against Catholic nations. And here you have two nations who call themselves Christian nations. But the it is the church telling the political state what to do. That's how heretics were killed. The church didn't necessarily actively kill the heretics. The church identified who the ter- heretics were. They had a religious trial. Once they identified the person as guilty of heresy, they turn them over to the state and the state burns them to death or the state does the execution. So when you have the fusion of church and state, which you had uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, when you had Catholic nations like France, but then the Protestants protest, well, they just set up now Protestant nations like say Germany. And, and now you still have the fusion of church and state. So yeah, right from the beginning, the Anabaptists said that's part of your problem because that's the old covenant. The old covenant did fuse church and state, so to speak. You know, God's kingdom was a a geographical plot of land and God's kingdom was a particular ethnic people and God's kingdom was political. Um, but the new covenant kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And so they say, you guys are dipping into the old Testament and you're fusing together this idea of kingdom into a Christian nation idea. So they protested that right from the beginning, this radical idea of separation of church and state that let the state do whatever the state wants to do. We're in charge of a different kind of kingdom and that's going to happen through the church. That was embedded in the Anabaptist ideal from the beginning. Now we think of the, we hear the phrase separation of church and state, like it's really common. They were the first ones to come up with that idea at a time where the church and the state were fused together. That's awesome. That's what I thought, but I wanted to get some clarity on it because I wasn't sure if, if it was from the beginning. 
man, I don't know if you've ever been much of a, had an idea of maybe planting a church, but you need to plant one down here in the Memphis area so I can have somewhere to go. <laughs> I love it, man. It'll give me an excuse to come down and visit more often. That would be cool. Hey, um, do it. Come down here and see me. We need to talk. All right, brother. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, why don't you go ahead and uh, plug whatever you want to plug, and then uh, I'll let you get out of here. Thanks. Well, listen, if people want to dig a little bit deeper, uh, there's a few different places they could go, uh, at least from my point of view. They could come to our church's website, themeetinghouse.com, and they can go back in the teaching archives. We have a series on this called uh, The Radical Reformation which is what we've been talking about on the heels of the Protestant Reformation, the Radical Reformation. Just go back a couple of years in the teaching archive and they can listen, listen to that at themeetinghouse.com. If they want to just keep up with me personally, my name is Bruxy. You go to bruxy.com, bruxy.com, and I have an ongoing blog there and other things posted. And also, if I've raised questions for people, and they, they, I mean, I shouldn't just leave you to clean up the mess by yourself, Craig. So if, <laughs> if I raise questions, people can approach me on social media with a name like Bruxy KV. I've got to be easy to find, right? So whether it's uh, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, I'm on most of the platforms. People can look up Bruxy KV and find me there. Last thing I'll say is uh, my book, The End of Religion, deals with this stuff, uh, how Christians can repent and believe and also how non-Christians can consider the real Jesus um, and, um, and and enter into that simplicity movement. So uh, the end of religion is something you can buy wherever you buy books, Amazon or wherever. Awesome. Man, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me again. This is I always enjoy our conversations. We've connected a little more on, on Facebook, too, which has been cool. So yeah, keep in touch and keep doing what you're doing, man. And Likewise, Craig. Keep doing what you're doing. Get on down to Memphis and plant a church for me. <laughs> All right. Go team. All right, All right. buddy. I'll see you later. All right. Bless you. See you, man. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. <laughs>